The University of Georgia Griffin Campus invites you to join us for news and information about the many and varied programs and activities at the UGA Griffin Campus. Information about gardening, the agriculture programs, and your UGA degree at the University of Georgia Griffin Campus. Your UGA degree is closer than you think. This program is made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. Listen each Thursday at 9 o'clock a.m. for the UGA Griffin Campus News. This program is produced by WKU AM 1450 and 102.3 FM and The Rock 88.9 FM and streamed live on our website, wkuradio.com. Join us now with our guests from the UGA Griffin Campus. And good morning and welcome to this installment of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. I'm your host, WKUAM and FM Sports Director Tony Braski, and today we're going to discuss the University of Georgia's Center for Food Safety located here on the Griffin Campus. And to help us along with those proceedings, we are joined by Dr. Francisco Diaz, who is the Director of the Center for Food Safety through the College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences. And joining us as well is the Communication Professional for CFS, Jennifer Reynolds, who is a long-standing Griffin resident or at least has been connected to the community for quite some time, as has Dr. Diaz. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much, Tony, for having us. It's a great, it's a pleasure to be back here. Well, what you do, Dr. Diaz, has to be an enormous responsibility. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of the day-to-day operations of the, the Food Center, could we talk about your background a little bit, your, your personal background and your educational experience and how you arrived at UGA Griffin? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a pleasure to uh, share with the audience. Uh, yes, I am I'm Francisco Diaz, and for uh, my, long, my, my full name is Diaz Gonzalez. I'm originally from Mexico. That's where I... I originally uh, grew up and, and then immigrated to the U.S. Um, about 33 years ago uh, to pursue my graduate degrees. I went to, to uh, Cornell University to get my master's and Ph.D. And then eventually was fortunate to stay a little longer here in this country to go to work for the University of Minnesota for 17 years. I was in the faculty there. I conducted research. Uh, and, and teach uh, uh, and also taught classes in food safety, food microbiology uh, for 17 years total. And then uh, Georgia came looking for me. And then I was very fortunate to, to land in my current position uh, as a center director for Center for Food Safety here at the University of Georgia for the last uh, almost seven years. It's been July 2016 since I'm here. It's been a great experience. I've been very fortunate to be part of, of this, uh, this institution and this uh, uh, academic unit. Well, hailing from Mexico, going to Cornell, and then to the University of Minnesota... What kind of adjustment was that for you, temperature-wise? That that's quite the, the oh disparity. yeah. Well, of course, that's that's whenever you think about uh, Minnesota. Well, there's the cold, uh, but I think let's say that New York State prepares us to the transition between Mexico and 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 Minnesota. New York is definitely for Georgia standards is a lot colder, but uh, definitely not at the level of Minnesota. But I was very pleased uh, when uh, Georgia came looking for me, whether. Uh, 
whether I was going to be moving away from that deep cold. I, I think after 17 years, I had enough of it. Yeah, I would think. I would think 17 <laughs> minutes would probably suffice for most people, for us here in the South. But let us turn now to Jennifer Reynolds, a communication professional for the Center for Food Safety. Jennifer, tell us a little bit about your background, please. Well, I grew up in Augusta, Georgia. I'm a native of the state. Augusta and College, baby. That's right. It's, I'm an alumni. and uh, 2500 Walton Way. That's right. That's where I went to college. And um, it was a great experience. We have that in common. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, it's nice to meet a fellow graduate. A from, Jaguar. Uh, yes, a fellow Jag. Um, I actually came to the Griffin area about five years ago. My husband and I, after Augusta, we lived in Greenville, South Carolina for a time. And then his work brought us here. Within about a year of working here or moving here, I began working at Griffin Daily News. And I worked there for two years before coming over here to UGA in the Center for Food Safety. So some of your listeners may be familiar with my work as a reporter. My background is in journalism. I've been doing that since 2011, and I've written for a wide variety of styles of publications, some business journals, a lot of freelance work, um, and Griffin Daily News was my first stint as a writer for a, a daily publication. It was a really good experience for me, and I'm glad to be here now. Well, in dealing with a daily publication, I'm sure your assignments varied. One day you might be doing a city commission meeting. The next day you may be covering parks and leisure services. The next day you may be covering a traffic accident. You got it. So how has the adjustment been for you dealing with something much more specific in scope as with the Center for Food Safety? That's a really great, great question. You know, I got my start in journalism writing for business publications. So most of my experience really was more feature oriented and writing about specific fields. So in some ways, this has been a return to my roots, but I had to learn a lot about microbiology. Obviously, didn't study much of that in college. It's my degree is in English. Uh, So I've gotten to learn a lot of things I never thought I would learn about, but it's incredibly interesting, and that drives me, the just the curiosity and, and learning these new things. Well, on to the, the meat and potatoes of the program, where I'm, a lot of people on the, you know from the outside that are tuning in this morning are, are aware of the Center for Food Safety, but mostly in name only. Dr. Diaz, could you kind of give our listeners an idea of what exactly the Center does? Uh, yeah, we're a, a unique academic uh, y- unit within UGA, and we're part of the uh, uh, first the Department of Food Science and Technology. Uh, all of the faculty that are part of our center are actually members also from Food Science and Technology, which is the is based in Athens. And then we're also part of the College of Agriculture and Environmental Sciences. So that's kind of a, where we, our, our, uh, our uh, center is located within the UGA structure. And uh, the center was founded about 30 years ago. We're actually celebrating, we're in the middle of celebrating our 30-year anniversary uh, with the vision of having uh, a, a re- uh, an academic and research unit that will help solve the problems on food safety. That was the vision that uh, my predecessor, Dr. Mike Doyle, was the founding director, had for the center. And this vision included creating a a strong partnership uh, between uh, the public and private sector. That's uh, from the beginning. It was part of our, our signature that uh, we bring together the, the large food companies that manufacture most of many of the, the products that we eat in this country, and at the same time bring to the table academics 
and bring to the table uh, uh, federal agencies that are involved in regulating and overseeing uh, food production. So that's in, in many ways, and this is was brought to, uh, all these groups were brought together because of the cutting-edge research that our scientists conduct in our laboratories. We are within UGA, but interestingly, uh, none of our faculty, including myself, I'm a, my title is professor too, besides director, uh, none of us teach classes because it's very ironic that whenever somebody learns that you are a professor, the first thing that the, the person asks you is, and what do you teach? Well, I don't teach anything right now. I used to teach a lot of courses in food safety back in Minnesota, but I don't. Most of our faculty do not either. So it's because we're dedicated to research. That's our, our, our primary um, uh Activity and the kind of research we're doing since the the, the, the initial uh, days of our center is to try to tackle the problems caused by microorganisms that makes us sick whenever we consume contaminated food. Uh, the kind of microorganisms that you read about in in the newspapers or in on the websites, uh, and the warnings about salmonella in poultry or. Uh, e. coli in uh, in lettuce or many other pathogens that are that are still happening in our food supply. Uh, so those are our subjects of research that we conduct at uh, in our center. Well, you can't do your work solo, and the you know, University of Georgia Griffin campus is brimming with world class researchers. Could you talk about some of the people in your department that help facilitate the research? Yes, we have, uh, here in Griffin, uh, we have uh, uh, seven other faculty, including, uh, in addition to myself, they are conducting research on, uh, for example, we have a couple of bioinformaticians right now, uh, all the emphasis in, in data analytics and uh, using uh, modern tools like uh, uh, artificial intelligence and um, uh, machine learning, they are applying those to uh, help uh, identify where the problems are with some of those pathogens. Other, other researchers, for example, uh, Dr. Ines Ortega, who is uh, um, a world-renowned parasitologist, she is actively working on trying to uh, understand uh, a pathogen that has emerged in fresh uh, produce uh, recently. It's called cyclospora. So he, she is one of our world experts. We have also uh, a number of faculty like Dr. Is, is Matt Kasim working very actively to tackle the problem with antimicrobial resistance and how microorganisms that carry genes that uh, can make them harder to treat when somebody gets an infection uh, because they have genes that protect them from, antibiotic, uh, from antibiotics. He is uh, shedding some light on what are the origins of those, those uh, organisms. And this is just the faculty here in Griffin. The center is not just the, the seven researchers that are here in Griffin. We are fortunate that uh, the University of Georgia, and I'm very proud to say this, that uh, it has the largest number of food safety microbiologists in the country for a single university. So besides the people that are here in Griffin, there is a network of other researchers in Athens in different departments, including our own department, food science and technology, department of poultry science, animal science, uh, in, in other colleges, the veterinary uh, college, 
um, engineering, uh, the college uh, in, in uh, the Franklin College with uh, the Department of Microbiology. So we have a really large number of people that I, I probably would take the entire hour if I wanted to describe what uh, the accomplishments of, of many of them, on, uh, not only here in Griffith, but also in Athens. Well, Jennifer, feel free to chime in on this as well. But Dr. Diaz, you mentioned that you, you deal with the public and the private sector with the results of your research. Are we talking governmental agencies? Yes, uh, government, I mean, industry. Like the Centers for Disease Control yes. or the Department of Agriculture. What agencies try to coordinate with the research that goes on here on the Griffin campus? That's a great question because we do have a robust relationship with the CDC and many of our researchers, uh, Dr. T has mentioned, our bioinformatics team, they partner with a researcher based at the CDC. So they are able to help do a deeper dive, I think, than the government agencies are able to do on their own. You know, they're concerned with handling an outbreak when it occurs, but then the researchers can take time after it to look at how that might have happened, how they can use their tools and resources that are available to stop it faster in the future. And I've heard from uh, one of our contacts at the CDC that they really like when their team can hear that follow-up because they're not able to do it on their own. So it's informative to them and to their work to be able to hear the results of the research that is done within CFS. Now, how does the collaboration of information work? Do, do these agencies contact you, or is it incumbent on you to contact them, or do we get a mixture? Well, we have a, 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 a we have a different channels, I guess. Uh, uh, in, in some ways, whatever works. Uh, we do have formalized uh, events that we bring together uh, the CDC scientists and officials with uh, some of the top researchers in, in, the, in the industry. We have a, a series of, of uh, events that we annually we, we have every year. So that's the more formalized. But when, when there is a, a crisis happening, let's say that uh, one of our, our, our uh, the, uh, com- affiliated companies have a, a problem when one of their products are recall or an outbreak, I think there is the interaction that uh, that we facilitate between the company and the, and the CDC that also very 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 uh, very effective of our our role um, in in the center, but it, it can take uh, going back to your question. It can take different shapes. Uh, oftentimes, I get calls from uh, industry trying to find out which is who is the right person within CDC to tackle a particular question they have. And vice versa, I also had calls from uh, from some of the CDC officials trying to find out uh, whenever there is a, a, a question for one of those companies that the CDC wants to learn more about how they do it. Uh, and it, it's, it's really great to see in the seven years I've been here in the centers, see the interaction, how we... Uh, Everyone is, cons- is concerned about one thing. We don't want to get people sick from food. Companies are trying to do their best. At least all the companies are part of our center. They are committed to, to prevent people from getting sick. Nobody benefits from, getting, from anybody getting sick. And the CDC, the FDA are trying to do their best on, on enforcing the regulations that exist and also trying to uh, give uh, the companies the best advice to help them figure out how, how is the best way to control this, this, this pathogen. So the, the interaction is very, very spontaneous in many ways, but at the same time, we have the, the challenge how we can, we can uh, make sure that the, the interaction continues to occur year after year. 
If there is an emergency situation, say an outbreak in listeria is found in packaged salad or Cronobacter in baby formula, as happened a couple a year, a year and a half ago, how quickly does do these outside agencies, companies, or government try to get you guys involved to figure out their issue? Well, uh, one thing I want to clarify: while we're involved in, in helping solve uh, some of those problems because of of uh, liability and litigation. We normally don't get involved right at the moment that it's happening because... Uh, so you're more preactive as opposed to reactive. Yes, or, or we are proactive because sometimes we're trying to identify where there could be a problem. Sometimes we're, we're researching, uh, uh, if, uh, for example, foods that so far hasn't been any, any case, but we are proactively looking. So, But for the most part, yes, whenever there is a crisis... Our intervention doesn't take place because uh, government officials won't allow to uh, bring anybody that is not directly involved because the only, the only, the only parties that should be involved is the companies, any of the companies involved in the, in the production and distribution of the product, and, uh, and all the different government officials starting from state agencies, which we also, I want to say in Georgia, we have a really good relationship with the uh, Georgia Department of Agriculture and the Georgia Department of Health. Uh, so the, the the involvement of all these agencies are th- those are the the first responders whenever there is a, a, an outbreak. In our case, we are in some ways providing some during the the actual uh, cor- course of the crisis. We provide kind of a f- uh, um, um, on the uh, on the side information and also our uh, and let's say a. And after the crisis, a post-crisis research uh, to try to prevent the next one from happening. That's oftentimes uh, why why we are getting involved is trying to understand how it happened and how we can help the 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 producers to from. from having another crisis like that one. So they get to backtrack, so to speak, and see what errors they may have made based on the research you guys have done here on campus. That's one way to think about it. And I think in layman's terms, and Dr. Diaz, correct me, or feel free to interject if I leave something out, food safety encompasses a lot of different areas of work. So when a crisis happens, government usually is the first responder. That's a great term for them. They get involved and they try to stop the problem before it spreads. Um, From that, CFS is a great tool to be able to take a deeper dive and to look more closely to come up with concepts or ideas for how these things may be mitigated in the future. And then industry companies are usually good if, if they're committed to food safety at implementing those and being sort of the boots on the ground in the actual processes of what is, is discovered within our labs. Do we have occasion and, and, I don't think you were leading me there, but it does beg the question. Do we have companies out there in the food industry that maybe aren't as proactive if there is a problem or a little more hesitant to accept the blame? Well, unfortunately, yes. That's, uh, I guess, like everything in this world, I guess they're good actors and some not so good actors, and uh, history is full of them. Um, multiple outbreaks have been have been caused because of neglect uh, at different levels. Some of them purposely neglect or 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 um, or um, or um, in, uh, non-intentional neglect. But I think uh, yes, uh, not all the not all the companies, uh, not all food producers 
are doing their best, uh, uh, but that's a role that uh, that uh, our, um, our regulatory agencies are trying to to make sure that companies are using the best practices. Some cases are are, are really difficult to to prevent because cases like uh, contamination from fresh produce, it's it's hard to prevent because it's coming all the way from the field, and we're supposed to eat the, the vegetables fresh without any cooking. Cooking is probably one of the best ways that we can protect from foodborne disease. Cooking kills most foodborne pathogens. But uh, in the case of fresh produce, it's a really hard not to crack sometimes with, uh, with, for example, this pathogen that I just mentioned, cyclospora. It's very hard to predict, uh, very hard to detect. Uh, we know, uh, we, we still cannot, uh, we don't understand many things about the pathogen. So in some ways, people are even... Companies are trying to do the best. They also have challenges that are really hard to to control because we don't have yet the science uh, fully developed to be able to understand what what's happening. So, but but yeah, I think it's uh, going back to your original question. Uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, there are companies that uh, they may not be doing their best. There are bound to be thousands of pathogens that we can find in our food. And people are aware of some of the more common ones, listeria, chronobacter, things like that. You have at least heard of them at some point. How dangerous are these to, to society at large? Well, uh, I, I guess the good news is that uh, in terms of lethality, uh, they are, we're fortunate that many of them are not so lethal. Uh, the majority of foodborne disease that people get is probably some gastrointestinal distress, diarrhea, vomiting, and most people normally recover from those. But there are a few of them. You mentioned listeria. That's one of the most uh, serious ones. We're very concerned about listeria because it has a very high lethality rate. We're fortunate that it's relatively unusual. Uh, it's estimated no, no more than 2,000 cases per year happen in the U.S., so if you compare that to, for example, to put it in perspective, uh, the number of, uh, of uh, coronavirus cases that we've been facing, it's a, it's a drop in the bucket. But, but what we, in food safety, what we need to, to, to understand is that uh, people getting sick from food is unacceptable. That's the point that we need to, the principle that we, we start. So especially food that has been manufactured by someone else and sold from, uh, by someone else, it should not make anybody sick. That's the principle that we need to follow. And, but uh, again, your question about pathogens, uh, yeah, there are some other uh, chronobacter for babies could be really lethal. We, we learned that uh, from the recent uh, outbreak. Uh, unfortunately, two babies died. On the, on the positive side, we're fortunate it's not happening very often, but again, it's unacceptable. One, one, one individual affected is way too many. And even worse, when, when a child dies, that's, that's something that uh, definitely in, in, uh, in, in, our, in our set of principles and values is something that should not be acceptable. Generally, when we think of foodborne pathogens, we tend to associate, at least I do, associate it with meat products. I didn't cook the chicken long enough and I got salmonella. The fish wasn't done properly. I got a, a, you know, a little food poisoning, a little illness going. But uh, what are there grains? Are there nuts? Are there other items that can be affected by pathogens? Are there other foodstuffs? Uh, yes. Uh, the answer is yes. Traditionally, uh, because many of, the, many of the foodborne pathogens are considered to be zoonotic, that's a term that means that can reside in animals 
and can be transmitted to humans. So Salmonella, uh, E. coli, Campylobacter, all of those are traditionally carried by uh, animals in their intestine. And when the animal is slaughtered, it could contaminate the, the meat, and then people can get sick if the meat is not cooked well. So you're right. So that's a cl classical example. But but pathogens can be found anywhere. Uh, and uh, Salmonella is probably the, one of the most diverse pathogens in terms of what kind of foods can cause disease with salmonella? Yes, yeah, so we think about salmonella typically related to chicken, to eggs, but salmonella, we, we've proven, as you said it well, uh, it's been, it's been uh, uh, transmitted through flour, it's been transmitted to seeds and nuts, to dry foods. We had the, the in Georgia, unfortunately, we had the, the peanut butter case here that uh, in 2009, that was a major outbreak. I had forgotten entirely about that. So yes, uh, the vehicles, the, the vehicles for transmission of pathogens could be multiple. Uh, and there are certain types of foods that are very safe. For example, canned foods, it's proven to be one of the best track records, uh, type of foods with the, one of the best track records because canned foods pretty much are, are, uh, are almost sterile and have no no microorganisms inside. But there are many, many foods that uh, in the past we used to believe that they were fairly safe, like flour, wheat flour. Uh, we tended to believe, well, we, we can even eat, uh, and the reason why kids used to be recommended that they shouldn't eat the raw dough was because of the eggs. Now we learned that not only the eggs, but the flour can make you sick because uh, E. coli and salmonella can also be present in flour. Yeah, there was just an outbreak with one of the major companies within the last couple of weeks. That's correct. You, you're, you're reading your news. Good, <laughs> great to see that. That's correct. Carla Swan from our extension office actually just published an article about how you can process your flour at home to help increase your safety. Now, how vital is cleanliness of our food and the prevention of foodborne pathogens? Because this is probably, if I fail, this is probably where I'm failing. Well, hygiene is the cornerstone of food safety. Because hygiene, without a proper hygiene and sanitation, people are gonna get sick. And, and uh, one thing I, 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 I think I'm always, um, I, I wanna remind the audience, uh, looking at the data of overall food safety, the majority of foodborne disease actually start at your own kitchen. At our own kitchen, either our own home or in a restaurant because people are not handling the food correctly, are not washing their hands, are, cr are cross-contaminating from, from chicken to fresh produce. So you're pointing the, f the finger to one of the most important aspects of food safety, hygiene. If we all wash our hands uh, regularly, probably would prevent many, not only foodborne diseases, but probably some other diseases like cold or flu, uh, we learned that uh, from the pandemic, the importance of, of, of hand washing, and uh, and yeah, the the cleanliness, the, the 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 all the other practices associated with proper uh, food uh, food uh, pro uh, preparation at home, those are really critical. But yeah, uh, food companies actually they have to uh, they have to have before they they can start production, they have to have what is called good manufacturing practices which includes a very important aspect of good manufacturing practices is the, the, all the, their sanitation and cleaning programs that they have for, if you imagine what it's like to prepare your food in the kitchen, just imagine a warehouse or larger size in which 
Uh, people produce food every day, and that has to be cleaned thoroughly every day because that could be the source of, of pathogens if, they, if it is not kept clean in a, in a daily basis. Can many of these pathogens survive on their own, like say on a cutting board? I learned through past experience that every once in a while you do have to either clean or change your cutting board because of the risk of cross-contamination. If people were to do that, would, would our incidence of food poisoning and foodborne illnesses re- be reduced? Uh, probably yes, but yeah, you point uh, the finger again. Another another critical aspect of food safety is cleaning the surfaces and, and, and uh, utensils that we use because pathogens and, and many other bacteria... Uh, may accumulate and form what is what is called biofilms. So uh, biofilms is one of the major threats in food uh, in food production on a large scale, because if you imagine using an equipment to produce the same food day after day, day after day, and if the surface is not cleaned properly, this is going to start accumulating a microscopic film with multiple cells or multiple organisms. And some of them could be listeria, some of them could be salmonella. So that's, uh, that's the, uh, yeah, that you're, you're actually pointing that the fact that uh, that's one of the major concerns of food companies uh, in their own sanitation programs uh, for their facilities, making sure that uh, the equipment is thoroughly clean every single day. Well, in an event such as that, is it possible to have two pathogens affecting you at the same time? Can you have listeria and salmonella or chronobacter and something else? I mean, does, can the human body tolerate or does one of the pathogens tend to dominate the other? Well, you're, you're asking a question in some of the cutting-edge science right now. For the most part, whenever somebody gets sick and the first pathogen is detected, that's when you said, okay, you got sick with listeria. <laughs> Uh, we actually don't, uh, the clinicians don't go out and try to find another one. But with modern, modern techniques that are, that are applied right now, there are more and more cases of more than one pathogen making somebody sick. So, yeah, we have novel technologies uh, that are used, uh, uh, molecular t- techniques in, in, uh, in labor- clinical laboratories that are capable of identifying more than one. So now we're learning that, uh, yes, chances are that people are getting from sick from more than one pathogen at once. Now, there is a wives' tale that diluted vinegar can help kill some harmful pathogens. Is there any truth to that? Very true. I, I am one of those that believe that uh, one of the, your best natural antimicrobial is vinegar. Vinegar has uh, acetic acid, which is uh, very lethal for for bacteria at the, at the pH, at the acidity that typically vinegar has. So vinegar, to me, it's, a, if it's the simplest, uh, probably one of the safest uh, antimicrobials that you could find at home. Okay, you mentioned you know anti, you mentioned microbial you know microbi antimicrobials. And that seems to be a, a problem, not just in your field, but antibiotics here since the COVID pandemic seem like they are less effective. What's causing this evolution with, with you know, things become building resistance, particularly food pathogens? It seems to me that that is, a, you know, an, ex, an exceedingly dangerous path. Uh, well, antimicrobial resistance, that's uh, the, where, where uh, I wish uh, Dr. Kasim would be here because he's our uh, antimicrobial resistant expert. But I'm going to say that uh, from what I, I've, I've been in doing in, in, in this field for a, num- a number of years, 
Antimicrobial resistance is is considered one of the most serious public health uh, threats to humans right now, and not just in foodborne pathogens. The concern is is with many clinical uh, infections that you get from many different pathogens. You heard about MRSA, that's one of the most serious uh, uh, antibiotic resistant pathogens. And there is uh, some uh, signs that uh, that we we will continue to see this, and it's a race of uh, of uh, humans trying to develop uh, new antibiotics that uh, that this antibiotic resistant bacteria will will not tolerate. So, and uh, it's it's been happening since the moment that we started using penicillin with uh, uh, Dr. Fleming many many years ago. Uh, because microorganisms uh, evolved to to develop mechanisms how they can uh, prevent from being killed by antibiotics. Antibiotics in nature uh, are actually the weapons that bacteria on um, uh, bacteria and other pa- microorganisms use to fight each other. In in nature, the existence of antibiotics that's where 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 they use it. But humans, we learned that we can if we could. If you can uh, make a microorganism that produces some of those uh, antibiotics and produces it in very large scales, it was very. It's been very beneficial for humans because thanks to to many of these antibiotics, next time that we get some sort of sore throat, we are, are and strep the infection, we're giving antibiotics, and then the infection is going to go away. So this is. But the reality is what, what's causing the antibiotic resistance is the use and overuse of this. Overprescription. Overuse. And it's, over, it's been uh, in many uh, at different levels because not only humans we use antibiotics, but animals have been given antibiotics. Livestock have been given antibiotics because animals get sick too. So the farmer that has cows or pigs in their, in their farm, so whenever the, the animals get sick, they need to give some antibiotics. So it's been... Uh, a really a, a great blessing for humans because we've been able to live in a society where we don't suffer from the infections that our, our predecessors used to suffer very often, but that led to this bacteria that now you cannot treat with the same antibiotics that you were treating because, and it's it's a it's a it's a it's a vicious cycle because you need to use antibiotics to treat infections that people have, but at the same time the more we we use them that may lead to more antibiotic resistance. And next time around that somebody else gets an infection, then they're going to develop. Does that mean necessarily that antimicrobials will always be a little bit ahead of our current level to treat them with antibiotics since they will evolve and we don't realize that pathogens have evolved until someone gets sick with it? Uh, it's a it's a complicated uh, process, but I'm going to le- le- let Jennifer to chime in. Thank you, Dr. Diaz referenced earlier Dr. Kasem, who is our expert on antimicrobials, and I've interviewed him several times for stories that we've done on his research. One of his concerns is the lack of development of new antibiotics. So I don't know if it means that the pathogens are ahead of us, but from what I think he would tell you is that we're getting behind the game. He is what he has told me in our conversations is that the drug developers aren't putting the research into these areas. It's not as profitable, profitable. For, for them as, as in some other areas. And with, with any luck, perhaps they'll become concerned and, and put in some research and some work in this area. But that, I, I think if he were here, he would tell you that is one of his biggest concerns. 
Well, as the communications director for the CFS, I'd be interested in your answer. What is the global impact of the Center for Food Safety here at UGA Griffin and the University of Georgia as a whole? What's, what's its global impact? That is difficult to define in a few words. Well, we, we've got 23 <laughs> minutes left. To We're going to need them. Um, yeah, it's a great question. We, we have a very global community within CFS, so we have just in the representation of our researchers and students, we have people from all over the world, which makes it possible for them to build global connections. You will find people from India, from Lebanon, from from all of these various places in a very small department. And I think that's important. You know, one thing we take for granted often here in America is the safety of our food supply. But I think in other countries, there's a bigger awareness of the dangers of foodborne illness and waterborne illness. And I think that that inspires some of these people to become involved in this research. So through those connections and through professional or or international organizations, our researchers are able to cast a really wide net working with other researchers, having um, many languages that many of them speak. So they're able to go out to various places and express these things. I know our researcher, Dr. Inez, Ortega frequently travels to farms across the globe. She speaks three languages fluently, and she's able to help educate people on the ground about safety issues that may not seem like it matters to us here in America, but that food gets imported and you eat it. So we need researchers like her to go out in the field. Um, And uh, one of our other researchers that's a great example, Dr. Govindaraj Dev Kumar, he's from India. He's working to help educate people there in India and they don't have the same sort of food safety programs in India that we have here in the U.S. So he's working to help build those and teach people there what the possibilities are through his networks. Well, that segues into a good next question. Is How do the standards here for food safety in the United States differ from those of the rest of the world? Well, uh, one thing to, to answer your, your question, first thing I want to say is, is if you heard the saying that the, food, the, the U.S. has one of the safest food supply, that's correct. I can, I can assure you that uh, despite all what you read in the, on, the, on the headlines about outbreaks, uh, we still have, uh, we can be sure that we have one of the safest food supply. And this is no, no coincidence with the, going back to your question. We do have a very strong regulatory uh, system uh, uh, with, that can be improved anyways. Uh, on any, on, on, uh, you also heard about uh, some of the concerns of the, some of the agencies, but the standards are one of the top of the world. Uh, we do have uh, very stringent uh, regulations such as we don't allow the presence of any pathogens. We have zero tolerance uh, for most foodborne pathogens in, in most foods. So, uh, the standards and uh, recently, well, it's not so recent anymore, but uh, in 2011, the Food Safety Modernization Act was passed. And in, since 2011, this law has been contributing to improve every aspect of the food supply. Um, and I, I think in many ways, the, 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 these regulations serve as models for many countries uh, yeah, there are very advanced countries in, in, in Europe that they have a, equivalent standards, but definitely the, uh, the U.S. standards, one, uh, definitely one, is, if it is not the top uh, type of food safety standards, it's one of the, the most advanced uh, food safety standards in the world. 
Well, Jennifer brought up a good point a minute ago, and we'll get back to that. And that do we as Americans take foodborne pathogens and illnesses seriously enough? I mean, once you get sick, you think, oh, this is the end of the world. But once you're over it, you kind of let it go by the wayside. Do we, are, are we too nonchalant about it? I think we are, for, from my perspective. I mean, I'd be, if, I were, if I did you guys' job, I would be scared to eat anything. I mean, it's like they always say, you know, you don't want to know what's in the hot dog. But by the same token, you know, do we, what can we do or how would you educate the public? How would you two together educate people about the seriousness of foodborne sickness? Here's how I would measure the public's response. And that is the response to the stories that I write about the research and that's I, ongoing. I have to say, and I'm not saying this just because you're here. I read some of your stuff this morning <laughs> in preparation. And you really do a fabulous job of explaining it. Thank you. And, and no offense to this, but I'm a layman. Yeah. And it, I understood it perfectly. Well, thank you. I'm a layman too. And it's been a learning curve to jump into well, this. Well, I was going <laughs> to ask about that. that it, you know, you must think that you could pass microbiology now with the extensive experience you, you no, picked up. I would be in so much trouble in a microbiology classroom, but I have learned a lot. And thanks to my coworkers and faculty members who so patiently explain things to me. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when we put out a story or when any news organization puts out a story that there's an outbreak in XYZ, what I think a lot of times people don't understand within food safety, they know how important this is. They don't understand they're also competing for bandwidth as I tell them often with people like the Kardashians, there's only so many news stories you can read in a day, right? So how do you, how do you overcome trends in media and, and what people are interested in and how do you get it in front of them? It is not an easy task. Though we did have one story that really caught people's attention. And I think it encapsulates very well the public's attitude toward food safety, and that is uh, Dr. Ismat Kasem discovered um, a gene in water in Georgia that can lead to antimicrobial resistance, like we were discussing earlier, which is really problematic because if antibiotics don't work for you and you have an infection in your arm, you could lose your arm. You could die. It, it is a big, big, serious deal. That story had nearly half a billion, I'm sorry, near, nearly 500 billion impressions globally. It caught people's attention because people at that point realized it was something that could impact them. In an average outbreak, I think they say, well, I just won't eat salad today, which always works for me. But <laughs> but I think it, I don't think people are as tuned in and aware as they could potentially be for their own safety. How do we change the public perception, though? Because, I mean, like I said, when you get sick with it, you think, oh, man, this is, this is my own personal Armageddon. And you never yeah. want to feel like that again. But, I mean, would it take fatalities, unfortunately, for people to, to take this with the, the level of serious? that it affords? I, well, yeah, certainly. I mean, we, as we saw with the COVID outbreak that, you know, when people think this is something that could affect That's me or someone point. I love, it gets their attention. I hope it wouldn't come to that. I, I think there are easier ways for the public to learn. Um, it, it just like we discussed earlier, good food safety techniques in your own kitchen do matter. And I know UGA, especially through our extension department, they put out a lot of resources and information about food safety. But as far as how to wake people up, I'm not sure. Because as you say, you know, when you're sick, it is terrible. I've had very serious case of, of salmonella myself. And then 
that raw cookie dough is really good. <laughs> yeah, and then you, you can <laughs> And then you're willing to risk years, it. Yeah, after a couple of you're years, you're like, yeah, I think we'll, we'll give it one more try. I'll give it a shot. But you bring up a good point about cleanliness in the kitchen. Yeah. And not only in the kitchen, but now, you know, next weekend, Monday with Memorial Day, the unofficial start of the summer season. Do we need to be particularly attentive to grilling out? Are there any safety tips or things that we need to bear in mind if we're going to be grilling out over the summer? Uh, well, uh, you, I, I guess, I, yes, the answer is yes, but I think it's not just this weekend. Uh, the, because people get sick every single week. Uh, the reality is that uh, we are careless because... The, we as, uh, uh, as consumer, oftentimes we said, oh, well, nothing has happened before. I'm uh, eating this uh, food that is already uh, kind of questionable and never happened before. So I think, yes, uh, this, this the grilling is important. Uh, again, it's the, 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 in this, uh, if people are going to be, um, but, but again, I would like to, to say that it's not just this weekend that you need to use a thermometer. Uh, if everyone, I, I've been pitching for years that if everyone used a thermometer, we probably reduce uh, a good chunk of the of the people getting sick every year. Uh, but uh, how many people? Every every survey about thermometer use, uh, you have less than twenty percent of people that even have a thermometer at home. That puts me in the one in five group for a change. Congrats. So I think it's it's uh, it's definitely, we. I, I like to use every single opportunity like this one to, if we can reach out to the consumer and, and, and make him aware that uh, that there is risk every time you eat because if, if you're not care, careful, that, uh, and of course, if you're being hit, that's when you probably become a believer that uh, that there is risk uh, um, in in many foods that you consume, but uh, it's it's something that because it, it is is pathogens are not exactly in every single food, so you're going to abuse foods and most of the time you're not going to get pay, you're you're not going to get you're you're not going to pay consequences, but that's going to be that particular time that the pathogen happened to be present in the food when when the individual either cross contaminated. Or or uh, or um, or didn't cook it well. That that's when you're gonna get sick. So it's uh, we 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 uh, we are we are confident that that never happens. But when it happens, that's when probably we we we, we change our practices. But uh, but definitely this is this is every opportunity to to have uh, uh, the consumer or the people in the restaurants. And oftentimes you go to restaurants and, and it's, 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 it's disappointing to see even that when some restaurants have their certification with SurfSafe, you look at the kitchen and the way they're preparing their food is not the best. So it's, but nobody gets sick most of the time. So I guess that's the, the point that uh, we grow very confident and apathetic sometimes. So I think it's important to remind people that's a possibility that can happen to you. Well, you have taken us in an avenue that I did not think of, and that's, that's so cool. But the serve safe numbers that we see, how important are they and how much attention do you as a trained professional pay to them? The you mean the training at the restaurants? Yes. Well, this, this, is, uh, uh, this is something that is, uh, is far from being perfect. And, and it varies from state to state. I'm going to give you the experience of Minnesota versus, uh, versus Georgia. Because uh, my wife had to, happened to be 
uh, before we moved to Georgia, she used to teach surf safe classes in, in Minnesota. And it's a big difference because the regulations are different from state to state. And in Minnesota, they were much more stringent than what they are here. In here, the requirement is only to have one, one certified uh, surf safe uh, manager in the entire restaurant. It doesn't matter whether the manager that is satisfied is actually present in the in the restaurant or not. In Minnesota, they require that a certified surf safe uh, uh, employee had to be present in the restaurant at every, all times. At all times, so it's a big difference uh, in terms of the concern. Uh, and I, I, I don't. Uh, unfortunately, there is hard to come up with data that shows. Okay, in Minnesota, people are getting less sick. Are less people getting sick from restaurants than in Georgia? That we, we don't have that kind of data here. But but I think it's, it's the surf safe is is a great. Uh, I think it's 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 a great tool that the. You wish that every single restaurant worker were actually trained and actually used the, the, what they learned because one of the things that we learned back in Minnesota, uh, working with the extension, we had a project in which we actually measure the, whether how long the behavior that the workers had learned, how long the behavior lasted. How long, how long before they got lazy? Well, uh, not only that, but the, one of the challenges that the 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 the, the food uh, the food service industry face is the turnover rate because you could have trained the workers today and they did a, a good job for the next three months, and then uh, then after that the workers the half of the workers left or or that was a temporary job uh, so. You already have a new set of workers, and not only that, we measure with the workers that we we did have uh, that they had gone through the training. Six months later, they, as you said it, they may have been lazy, they may have been careless, and they didn't see the point. They learned it, and then they said, "Oh well, this is the way I've been doing it in my entire life. Why would I change?" So that's. Uh, but but I think I uh, going back to I don't want to say anything that uh, the Serve Safe program is great that we have. But in, from my point of view, I wish that we would have much more uh, support from regulatory agencies to make sure that those, those, uh, those practices at the kitchen in most restaurants are followed. So it's safe to say that it is a good service, but could be better. It, uh, that's exactly what, uh, what the message is. It's great that we have them in this country, and it varies from state to state. That's a message that I also want to make sure people take. Uh, because, for example, in other in other states, they even score the restaurants with a grade. So you see, you go around, for example, New York City, you go around places, and, and each restaurant has a grade from C to B. So they are supposed to be. The funny thing in New York City, most restaurants are have an A. I I, I don't recall seeing any restaurant below below of a B. So. Makes good sense. You need to keep up with your competitors, I would suppose. But oh, yeah. Fascinate me with this because I see this on my sheet and I've wanted to ask from minute one. I'm familiar with Jackson Pollock and black light, but what is blue light technology and how is it going to change the way we live? Well, uh, yeah, so this is your, you're referring to the project that we have using blue light to treat surfaces against uh, pathogens. Uh, this is this technology is still in its infancy to to be able to apply it to real uh, foodborne pathogen prevention. 
We are investigating at this time. Um, we, we were fortunate that uh, we got funding fr first from the Center for Produce Safety and then more recently from the uh, National Institute for Food Agriculture of the USDA with a larger grant. And we're looking at, uh, yeah, it's very promising if you have a surface that has listeria or other pathogens and you expose it to a lamp that emits blue light, uh, the numbers die, the numbers die, the, the bacteria die, that's for sure. But uh, it has some limitations because the, the, the dose has to be very high. And it, uh, so we're exploring how to improve, to in, 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 um, uh, optimize the, the ability of blue light. Blue light has been exploding in terms of application. Uh, I don't know if you Google blue light lamps, and so you're going to find lots I of I wanted to hear it straight from you. Well, uh, but yeah, I, I would invite our audience to Google blue light lamps, and you're <laughs> going to find a lot of them. Some of them, you could buy them to treat your own pimples uh, with a very small pen type of, of lamp that you put in on your skin. And then there's a lot of uh, lamps that are sold to, uh, for the purpose of 3D printing. These lamps are intended to help polymerize the plastics that are used for 3D printing. So those, you can buy one of those for 50 bucks on, uh, through Amazon. And then the lamps that we're using, those are industrial type lamps that they are not intended for, for uh, pathogen treatment. They are intended for other industrial purposes, but we are adapting them to our research. Uh, those lamps cost uh, close to $4,000 each. And uh, they are small, they are not that big, but uh, in the ideal world, we would like to see uh, blue light applied to processing facilities that you can put it on the ceiling. And while the workers are, are cleaning, that they would help them reduce pathogen uh, presence. Nice. I, I mean, like I said, that's, that's all new to me. But Jennifer, could, could we ask you this about the uh, Food Safety Informatics Group? What is it and how does it foster the food safety program here at UGA Griffin? That's a great question. This, uh, this is a team of, of three guys, two researchers here and one from the CDC. And basically they use computer technology and food safety. These guys are experts in both fields. Now, I think I know computers, but when I sit down and have a conversation with them, this it is, is challenging. IT, the These IT guys level are stuff, huh? the, no, they are beyond that. These guys create the software, and so they use that ability and that know-how and apply it to food safety. So, you know, in the past, where an outbreak might take three days for reach, researchers to discover what the cause of it was, they've reduced this now to just a few minutes with some of the software that they've developed right here. So they can get much faster information to the people who need it. When, when a situation occurs and hopefully shut down an outbreak faster. I mean, if you're familiar with those at all, you know, maybe there's some packaged salad that has gone out that has some sort of salmonella in it that's making people ill. The sooner they can find it, the sooner they can do a recall, the less likely you and I are to get sick by eating it later. Well, given your ability to disseminate information, I do hope that this is part, it falls under your purview. It, well, it depends. I mean, normally these alerts do come from the government agencies, but we certainly can push those out to our channels once we become aware of them, too. Well, let me get this one quick announcement in just so Elizabeth Laney does not skin me alive. She <laughs> wants you to know that the American Red Cross will be scheduling a blood drive here on the UGA Griffin campus. That to be held in the Stuckey Auditorium. That's upcoming Wednesday, June 14th 
from 1 to 5 p.m. To schedule a time, you can visit redcrossblood.org and use the coupon code UGA Griffin. And do bear in mind that summer donations tend to slag off at the time that the Americans tend to need it the most, so make your plans to come out and give blood at the UGA Drive on June 14th. Back to our guests, we're joined today by Dr. Francisco Diaz, the director of the Center for Food Safety here at the UGA Griffin Campus, and Jennifer Reynolds, a communication professional at the CFS. You know, any final thought? What's the, the Dr. Diaz, what's the most dangerous pathogen in the course of your career you've had to face? Most dangerous I mean, pathogen. I mean, are we talking full <laughs> hazmat suit? Human uh, error, probably. No, we're, uh, when, when we deal with foodborne pathogens, uh, most of them are considered to be under BSL-2. There are four categories of biosafety level. That's what BSL stands, biosafety level. So it's all the way to biosafety level four. Uh, let's start with uh, the virus that we all are familiar with, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 or the coronavirus. Uh, it's a biosafety level three. In the case of the pathogens I've dealt in my, in my career, it's been mostly biosafety level two. So the biosafety level two are defined by pathogens that can be transmitted by ingestion, not by inhalation, not by through the skin. So uh, Listeria, Salmonella, we work with them in the laboratory. And, and uh, as long as nobody ingests them by, by mistake or by, by accident, uh, everyone will be safe as long as uh, we use gloves, we use protective uh, material. Uh, nobody's going to get sick. We incur- all the, the workers are need to wash their hands every time they walk out of the laboratory. The laboratory has access uh, limited to visitors. So the, the unfortunately, I, I, I have to say that in, in Minnesota, I did work with bacillus and traces, which the, the cause of anthrax, which if you remember, we were concerned about bioterrorism. The reason why we were working with the bacillus and traces was because it was after 9-11. And if you remember uh, the stories about bin Laden planning to use uh, anthrax spores uh, and other biological weapons. So we got some funding from Homeland Security to explore the possibility that uh, spores of bacillus and traces would be used into, into milk. So we conducted a number of research in that regard. But uh, the strains that we're using were attenuated strains because anthrax, that's a BSL-3 organism. And uh, that definitely does someone, uh, a, a pathogen that uh, you need to be more careful in how you handle it. Well, Jennifer, you know, still being new to the position somewhat, a couple yeah. of years is still somewhat new. Yes. Can you tell from, your, from the researchers with whom you work when a major breakthrough has been reached? Yeah, they get really excited and they come to my office and, and they that, want me to write a news story for them. Has, I mean, you've had that happen so far. Yeah, I have. Yes, I have. Which leads me to my question for Dr. Diaz. You know, 30 years is a long time to do anything any job. How has the Center for Food Safety, how has food safety changed from when you started to now and then again from when you took over the Food Safety Center here in 2016 to now? What changes have you seen that well, stand out? Uh, multiple. Multiple. Uh, I guess if you look at the, what kind of pathogens were recognized 30 years ago and the pathogens that are recognized right now are very different. That's one for one. So the, the organisms, the recognition of additional organisms have increased. The tools that we have for studying them, the tools that we have for controlling them have 
of, of change. One of the, the most important developments that we had in, as a country, not an, in our center, is the, the, inc the improvements in surveillance of recogni recognizing when somebody got sick by a pathogen. Because many of the pathogens that we know now is not that they are new, is the fact that they existed before, but we didn't have the tools to detect them. We didn't have the tools to recognize when somebody got, got sick with them. So that has make a big difference. Data uh, information information technologies has revolutionized food safety in many ways. One of them is bioinformatics. The development of molecular techniques such as whole genome sequencing that has happened in the last 20 years has come to, to help us uh, study the organisms better, control them better, identifying them better. Uh, now, globalization has a big impact on, 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 on those emerging pathogens. Uh, we've, we've realized that many of those pathogens have moved from other countries to the U.S., or we have even moved pathogens from the U.S. to other countries. So the, the, tra the global trade has been uh, also changing uh, quite a bit the, 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 the picture of food safety uh, in 30 years. And I would suspect that's going to be an ever-changing. The more global we become, the more pathogens will be introduced. And that's a lesson that we learned with the pandemic. It, it wasn't uh, a pathogen that existed in probably in a, in a feral animal in China, and we all got it in all over the world. Well, this feral animal in Griffin, Georgia, is going to take this time to wrap up this week's University of Georgia <laughs> Griffin Campus News. I want to thank our guest this morning, Dr. Francisco Diaz, the director for the Food Center, Center for Food Safety through the College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences, and Jennifer Reynolds, a communication professional for the Center for Food Safety. It's a pleasure meeting you both. And Man, y'all put this in a language that I can understand. And listeners, we thank you for your involvement in this morning's program and hope that you will join us 167 hours from right this very minute for the next installment of the UGA Griffin Campus News. Thanks for joining us for today's program of UGA Griffin Campus News. Listen each Thursday morning at 9 for UGA Griffin Campus News on WKU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, and The Rock 88.9 FM, and streamed live on the WKURadio.com website. Today's program was made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. Music